people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. United Armies of the Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That's Mr. Horsley. And today on the show... Well, it's Dennis Hallam. Some people know him as Dennis Hopeless, or he could be Dennis Hopeless Hallam. Uh, really, take your pick. But on this book that he talks about, Sea of Stars, coming at you through image, it's Dennis Hallam. Yeah, coming out July 3rd with Jason Aaron and Stephen Green. And uh, Casey sat down and talked to him about you know this book, and also about you know, X-Men, other stuff he's done as well, because you know they talked for a full hour, so there's a lot of time there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's... It, as always, Casey asked some really good questions, and they have a lot of fun. There you go. Why don't we sit back and listen to Dennis and Casey in their own words? All right, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. My name is Casey Allen, and today I am talking to the writer of the upcoming XO Man of War. Sea of Stars, along with Jason Aaron, X-Men Season 1, and uh, he, he's done some Spider-Man, Gearhead. This this guy's done a lot of stuff. You might know him as Dennis Hopeless, but this is Dennis Hallam. How's it going? How's it going, man? So l- let's go ahead and I'm, I know you've talked about this a bit before. Uh, you had the, the Hopeless moniker for a while, and now you're wanting to get away from it. And totally respect that. Was this a hard thing for you to uh, to come to terms with that you wanted to just kind of drop that, drop the pen name? Yeah, I mean, it's, I created the pen name when I was in my early 20s. It seemed like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> I was going to be a rock star comic book writer. And then well, it, it makes me think of Hopeless Records. Right. Yes, exactly. That's exactly my thought. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had it for a long time. It's. It's how most of my friends, all of my comic book friends know me. Um, it, it's obviously how I built my career. It's how my fans know me. In the last few years, I just, like, I went through some personal stuff, went through a divorce and had children and kind of just outgrew the name. And I felt like it didn't matter. Like, that's my brand. Like, that's what that's what I'm always going to be known as. And so at one point, I just decided to have the conversation with Marvel. Like, what would happen if I wanted to go by my real name? And they're like, well that's kind of why we don't love people coming up with pen names because <laughs> at some point you're 10, 15 years older than you were when you made that decision. And it's really hard to go back. So we came up with uh, the idea of just leaving hopeless on the covers of the books and then putting my real name so I could kind of transition. And then on sea of stars, when we did that book, because Jason's got a really big name and I own that and it's not confusing. I went with Hallam, just straight up Hallam on that. And what we found was people don't know that's me. 
like when you don't put hopeless on the book at all we got reviews where people think that i'm the the artist or they're talking about like it being my debut book like people just did not follow the through line yeah from hopeless hallam to hallam so at this point i mean honestly it's been kind of a weird half fast transition for the last couple of years i don't care what you call me like if marvel wanted to switch back to just being hopeless I, it, that's not gonna hurt my feelings and it it never it never offended me for people to call me that so i think i sort of unnecessarily created confusion about my identity <laughs> and it's been long enough now that i don't care i'm happy to be either i understand i understand uh, i mean i i I kind of like the uh, the transitional Dennis Hopeless Hallam. You're you're like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, man. Yes, I mean exactly. you you and he, man, against the world. <laughs> right. So, um, man, you you've been at comics for you know not a whole heck of a lot of time, uh, uh, maybe a little over ten years. Yeah. Uh, you've covered a lot of ground since then. Yeah, I had a I had a weird career because I. I did one creator-owned book in 2007 called Gearhead. Um, made no money at all. Came out through a little publisher. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure it exists anymore called Arcana uh, out of Canada. Put that book out. And then we just went to every comic book convention for the next two years. Like We would do a dozen a year. And we're just hawking this, this, this book nobody ever heard of. And then the artist, my buddy Kevin Mellon, got a whole bunch of work from it. And so I spent the next few years at the time it seemed like a billion years but i guess i spent the next four years just doing pitches and like trying to do um projects with different artists that i met at cons i had like i had a project with mike norton i had a project with scotty young i had a project with phil hester and they would all fall through for various reasons because that's how comics work and so i just had all this crazy body of unpublished work between my first book and my second book which came out in 2011 which is another book kevin drew but at some point in there, I got frustrated, and so I sent samples of all those half-finished projects out to Marvel and DC editors with like fake release dates and different publishers. <laughs> For some of them, I created uh, logos to, to trick them into thinking they were going to come out because they can't look at stuff that's not published, you know. Yeah, so <laughs> that is <And> amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I broke down the door. Like I, about a year later, I got somebody at Marvel. Heard my name through another freelancer. It was um, Alejandra Arbona was an editor at Marvel at the time, and he found that packet because Ryan Stegman had introduced this at a con, and he saw it, looked at it, and he was like, "Oh, this guy's done a bunch of different stuff. He's good." Asked me if I wanted to pitch a book that became Legion of Monsters, which was my first Marvel work. And then while we were working on Legion of Mar Monsters, X Men season one, the writer quit, and they needed someone to do it right away. So I started working on that. And then at the same time as those books came out, my second creator own book came out. So like I had Marvel work several years and lots of dead projects in between my first and second books. But when my second book came out, like I already had Marvel work. So that's wild. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So I did most of my like coming of age in the shadows, and then have almost all of my career has been work for hire. How was your experience writing the monsters book? Was was did you enjoy that? Is that something that you um that you have an interest in already? The like the yeah, Dracula at, and all that other stuff. At the time, I uh, Frankencastle had just happened, and I loved Frankencastle. I know that's a polarizing book, but I'm friends <laughs> with Rick and Tony, and I just I thought that idea was bonkers and really fun, and loved it a lot. And so when they asked me to pitch Legion of Monsters, I just pitched 
the Legion of Monsters as like a cop book that takes place in Monster Metropolis beneath Manhattan, and you know, it's like monsters fighting monsters, <laughs> sort of a weird Ghostbusters um, police story with Elsa Bloodstone as the FBI agent that hates monsters but has to work with them. And it was a blast because I was just a fan. You know, like five minutes before that, I wasn't working at Marvel. I had you know, I had friends and comics, but I had barely done anything. And then I got to play with like my favorite weird corner of the Marvel universe. And I got yeah, to play. Go ahead. So many deep cuts there. So many deep cuts. I love shit like that. Yeah. When well, the research was really fun. Cause I only knew those characters from Rick's work and I got to go back and look at all the seventies monster comics and you know, like werewolf by night and Dracula. And we, we dug into all that. That actually recently a photo showed up online of Jared Leto pretending to read my Legion of monsters run on the set (laughs) of a movie, which I thought was a really funny combination of things. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't imagine that that movie has anything to do with my Legion of Monsters run, but uh, it was a funny photo to send to my mother. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's got to be pretty cool. I I am going to watch that film. (laughs) I'm going to keep my opinion to myself until it comes out and it happens. Uh, it might be awesome, man. There, there are a ton of people that love the, uh, the Venom movie, which that I, movie I like, was so weird. It's the weirdest movie I've ever seen. It was, it was, it was bonkers. And it, it's like, like it, a really bad movie for the first <laughs> two thirds, like just really bad. I like everybody in it. Like I, it's, I, I don't know what happened. And then, the final third, which is usually the worst part of a superhero movie because it's all very pat. We've seen it before. Yeah. Somehow becomes a fucking Todd McFarlane comic book. Like it's exactly <laughs> Venom. It's exactly <laughs> 90s Venom just for the last half hour. And you're like, what am I watching? Like what is happening? So, yeah. 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 It was it was a hard movie for me to grasp. And yeah, there, the first little bit of the movie, I was just like, this is awful <laughs> this isn't this is not venom at all no Who it's very it? weird the action sequences are really good though like even in the middle when he does that car chase and he keeps yeah bleeding the out thing on the motorcycle yeah, and yeah, that's what i'm talking about yeah. that was wild that was cool but yeah it's his take on the character is the weirdest thing since jigsaw from punisher Warzone. no oh, yeah. time i've ever seen somebody act like that <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that john travolta who played that that's no, that's he's the bad guy in the Thomas Jane. Punisher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Warzone is the one I can't remember the actor's name, but it came after that. That was like nobody watched it, like crit- critically reviled with it. They basically did Welcome Back, Frank. I and, liked the the guy who played the Punisher in that film, awesome. in Warzone. He's but, in a um, he's better, like, he's a, he's a very good version of Frank Castle in a very weird, bad movie. Yes, yes, and I, I wanted to. I wanted to love that movie, especially you know, having been the kid that saw the Dolph Lundgren Punisher at the video store when he was a kid, and was like, oh yeah, and then put it in the DVD or in the video player, and was like, oh no, <laughs> yeah, there was this a is not good. <laughs> in college when, like, so I was a freshman in college when X Men and Spider Man came out. And so, like, right when the first movies that did it right were happening, oh, uh, yeah. 
I like in college, I wrote for um, Broken Frontier. I wrote their movie news for a while. So I was really, really into superhero movies at the very beginning of them being good. I went back and bought DVDs of all the old ones. So at one point, I owned <laughs> the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Uh, I never watched it, but I did put it in to see what the the menu looked like, like the DVD menu, and it was amazing. It was like a weird funhouse theme thing, but it was clearly like done. Oh, nice. <laughs> those menus. Yeah, it was awful. And I, I remember the uh, they did a Captain America movie around the same time, and for some reason, he had rubber ears. With the rubber ears, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> but um man <laughs> so you, yeah you you did X-Men season 1 mm-hmm. like right off the heels of your uh your monsters book how was it getting into that universe and and, and more specifically how was it working with the uh, editorial staff on that and and everything and getting to know those people did anyone there kind of like bring you under under their wing cuz you you were coming in from indie well, so Alejandro Arbona, who I'm still friends with to this day, um, was awesome. He brought me in. He gave me Legion of Monsters. He was sort of holding my hand through both of those projects. But X-Men Season 1 was a strange project because, I mean, I'd never written anything fast. Like, everything I'd done had mostly died on the vine while I waited for pages to come in. And now I had two deadlines at the same time. And so I'm writing both of those books. I had a day job still at the time. Eventually, I went down to part-time and then ended up quitting because doing the writing two books, which is hilarious to me now, but writing two miniseries at the same time was just way too much work. And the, so Legion of Monsters was mostly just like, we have this book on the schedule. It can be anything. So just pitch what you want. So it was just getting Alejandro to like it was all I really had to do. X-Men season one was weird because it was part of an initiative that they had hired other people to do already. You know, like I was coming in because someone quit. So Jamie McKelvey was already hired and had done character designs and was ready to go. And the initiative was changing. Like initially it was going to be digital first and then come out in collections. Like so digital singles and then come out in collections. And then at some point during the pitch process, they changed it to being a original hardcover graphic novels, which Marvel had really never done up until that point. Like original graphic novels was a relatively new thing. Yeah. And they didn't ex- because I wasn't in on the ground floor. They didn't explain it very well, so I kept pitching them like retcons or like stuff that took place before the early '60s issues. And for those people that don't know, the season one books were essentially taking the Stan and Jack era, like the very early Marvel books, the origin stories, and then updating them to make them take place in the modern times. So essentially, like Spider-Man with with iPhones, right? But I didn't know that. I, I thought it was supposed to be like new material and new content. So I kept turning these pitches where different things happen and they kept being like, no, you don't understand. Nothing can contradict what happened in the original books. Like this has to be, and everybody else, like Colin Bunn's a good friend of mine. He wrote Spider-Man season one. It's just Spider-Man, but it's now, you know, like it's yeah. just exactly the story, but it's now, but I was dumb and didn't understand. So eventually what I pitched was, well, we'll do Friday night lights, but the superhero battles from the Stan and Jack X-Men will be the football game. So we'll tell a brand new story between the raindrops of all of those original issues. Cause the books are very, very fight centric, you know, like there's not a lot of teen drama going on. There's a little bit. So yeah, I made it just like a Jean gray centric book where it's Jean's perspective of 
interacting with the X-Men when she first got to the school and, you know, the boys all have a crush on her and this and that. But we were, so we were able to tell a new story inside of the frankly pretty simple and not that deep early X-Men issues. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy doing the, the research on the old X-Men books? It was super fun going back and I mean, at that point, like from, in my personal opinion, X-Men became great later. Oh, like yeah. Took the raw yeah, material totally. that Sam Jack did and turned it into to better books much later. So in those early issues, there's like there's a lot of like raw energy and some of the panels. Like when Beast quits the team and becomes a professional wrestler, the first time he comes out, he is like dressed up like a wild man and he has like a team of of like dancers and trainers and he's in a wooden cage. Like, I don't know who built him all this stuff his very first day as a wrestler, <laughs> but that panel is like my favorite Jack Kirby drawing of all time. It's so cool. Um, and so because we were telling a story in and around that, like I got to like essentially do my Buffy version of that where it's all teen <laughs> drama and, and hormones and it's the same stuff, like the same thing happened, but like, what is everybody's perspective when they're at the mansion, just like hanging out? So that was really fun to do. And also like, like most sixties comics, Jean would use her powers to like cut cake and cook the boys food and stuff. So making Jean the focus and giving her a lot more like agency and power and energy was super fun without, you know, without changing what was there. So I, I it was, a, it was challenging. It was really fun. I loved um, Jamie's art from from like Phonogram and his. Is that what that book's called? I think it is. Uh, the stuff he done with Kieran at Image, but he hadn't become like a huge name like he is now. It was one of his first yeah, Marvel things. Yeah. So getting and, the pages in, like, it was amazing. And I'm one of the only people who's ever gotten to work with Jamie McKelvey because he's been he's been with Kieran on uh, Wicked and Divine and whatnot for years since then. So I'm really really lucky that I got to do this project. That oh, was totally. like an X Men book. Amazing, yeah. With an so, artist who's incredible, who not many people have been able to work with. Yeah, yeah. He like super well sought out, I'm sure. And uh, you just like bag him right away. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm really. I, I didn't. That book was weird because when it came out, it, they sold really well in the book market, um, and they were kind of expensive books. So like, I made a ton of money at con selling them because it's a beautiful package. And it's a thing that's easy to sell to, you know, like parents with their kids that want some X-Men thing. Um, it also sold, like, I'm a New York Times bestselling author because of that book. Like, it sold oh, that's wild. well enough to be on that list. Um, and then I got to work with Jamie. And then I, I was told at Marvel that my work on that is the reason that they hired me on Ongoing. It's like the reason I have a Marvel career is that that was so well received internally. But it wasn't until years later that I realized that became the book. I mean, that's the book everybody says is the gateway drug for the X-Men. Like someone who's never read X-Men before, what do you give them? Like on, on online lists or podcasts or whatever, that's what people always say. And I didn't realize that until a few years ago that it had become. Do you think that the format of that book kind of gave it access to places that otherwise it wouldn't have? Uh, because it was, di- didn't you say it was hardcover? It was hardcover and yeah. GN? Yeah. For a hot minute, it was in every single Barnes and Noble in the country. Yeah, because I actually encountered it uh, a, f- a few weeks ago. Last time, uh, last time we were able to to do such things as walking around and going right. to our bookstores, um, I actually encountered that book and and kind of thumbed through it. And uh, 
it, it looked it was a beautiful book. Yeah, the, the hardcovers. That's when they stopped doing the um, the cover. What's it called? The um, the paper cover that goes around normal hardcovers. Yeah, the the ra- oh, crap. What's that thing called? I don't know, dust, dust jacket. Dust jacket. Dust jacket. They quit yeah. doing dust jackets with that, so it's like a matte finish yep. hardcover with no dust jacket. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and then they recently they recently re released those with new titles. So there is a soft cover version of the book that's called something else. It's not called X Men Season One anymore. Um, and there was a period of time where when they went out of print. Diamond was selling them off for $3 a piece. And I wish I had known that it was going to become a thing that I'm known for. Because at the time, <laughs> it was like, well, that's a book I did a while ago. Because if uh, I could have those things for them. 3 bucks a piece, yeah, I would have a garage <laughs> full. Take those things to cons and just uh, send your kids to college. Yeah. <laughs> I would have made a $22 per book profit had I been able to do that. That but. is what. <laughs> so did – while you were doing that, because it was kind of an updated version of the story, did you feel? Did you ever feel like you had to kind of pull back on the modern a little bit to let those characters shine through? I mean, honestly, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Like, I, <laughs> I was trying. It was a really useful exercise early in my career in plotting on a schedule because there was so much plotting that had to be done to make it all work and tie it together and like. So the you know the beats had to happen sort of like how they happened in the book, but it had to make sense with the story I was telling, and the updates needed to be pretty superficial but make sense. There was a lot of on the fly mental math that was happening, but I didn't have the perspective to be like, oh, they should be careful. I just wrote it and turned it in. I hope they didn't give me too many notes. And fr- from the X office, you were able to transition in- into writing for Spider Man. How-, how was that experience? Right for Spider-Man. Well, the way my career went, I went from X-Men season one to Cable and X-Force, which was a huge Marvel Now launch, and also Avengers Arena, which launched at the same time. So my first two ongoings had the came out the exact same day. So I spent two years or a year and a half, however long those two books ran, desperately trying to figure out how to write double shipping books at the same time. Like I was super overwhelmed and the schedule was awful i had to have fill-in writers a couple different times and those books were well received and i love them um but coming out the other side of that i was sort of exhausted and wanted to just do one book like i don't want to do two ongoings anymore so um cable and x-force and uncanny x-force merged and became the size spurrier x-force and so i was off that book and then Avengers Arena had a sequel series called Avengers Undercover. So we were supposed to do Avengers Undercover for 15 issues and kind of finish that story up after we did 18 issues of, of Arena. And um, the book, I mean, we should have known that. In hindsight, Avengers Undercover is basically Avengers Arena minus the massive hook that is Avengers Arena. Because Avengers Arena, for those people who don't know, is essentially Hunger Games but with Marvel teen superheroes. So all these characters from different teen books are thrown by together by arcade into a death match and have to kill each other. And we did like battle Royale hunger Games sort of the situation. There's 18 issues of that. And I got death threats online and like people still hate me to this day. There's a hashtag fuck Dennis hopeless on Tumblr because I did this sort of dark, you know, 
deathmatch with beloved characters. Uh, but it sold really well. Like it was, people talked about it. We we changed a lot of people's minds. Like people thought it was going to be one thing and it was another. And to this day, I still have people that love it, but it sold well. So we decided to do a sequel series called Avengers Undercover that is what happens to the kids next. But when you get rid of the deathmatch, you get rid of all of the like angry articles and you, it's just, you, you lost the hook. Yeah, so our yeah. 15 issues of Undercover became 10 issues in the middle. Like they, After issue 8, they said, can you wrap it up in... Or maybe it was after issue 7, they said, can you wrap it up in 2? And I said, give me 3. So we had to hurry up. We did a big time jump and had to hurry up and wrap it up in a short arc. So coming off the end of that, I was like, oh, well, I went from having two ongoings of ship, the double ship, to one that doesn't, to what's my next job. And that... Uh, which is just how com- and that's how comics go. As a freelancer, like something ends, you need to be like hustling for the next thing to line it up. But I'd never had to do that before. And Nick Lowe and I had worked on uh, the X Force together. He was the X Men editor, and he had just moved over to the Spider Man office. So Nick Lowe is the Spider Man editor now, and then. And he asked me, he was it was Dan Slott was getting ready to do Spider Verse, and they were going to launch some new spider character books out of that and he asked me if i like spider woman and i love spider woman uh spider was one of my favorite characters uh, one of the best her. costumes in all of comics right which we immediately changed uh, <laughs> so yeah he asked me if i wanted to do spider woman and uh i said yes absolutely like i'll anything to write jessica through i think it's a great idea and he said okay well here's the rub the first four issues are going to take place in the middle of this event. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Those will sell really well, right? Like event comics tie-ins sell awesome. And he's like, well, it's kind of a complicated event. Because <laughs> Spider-Verse is like every spider character ever. It takes place in all these different universes. And it's, I mean, you know, they made a movie out of that. I guess everybody knows what Spider-Verse is. But so my first four issues of my next big launch make absolutely no sense unless you're reading another book. Like I tried really hard to dance between the raindrops again and tie everything Jessica's doing very tightly into the main story. But like when event books are happening, the main story is shifting because you get this Bible that's like, this is everything that's going to happen. And then the writers all go off and write their own scripts and things shift around. So like one issue I had to completely rewrite the second half of the book because what Dan did contradicted what I had done while the first half was being drawn. And it was, it was just a logistical nightmare that, (laughs) <laughs> it couldn't have been a bigger pain in the ass. And while all of that's going on, Milo Minara did a um, oh yeah <laughs> cover that was blew up online, like became like a crazy hot button issue online because it's like a, essentially a naked Jessica Drew's butt in Look the at, air. He he drew a Milo Minara piece of artwork. Right. That's and what that's he does. Like essentially, yeah. It's what he does. It's what he was hired to do. But it was a perfect storm because when when it came time to do the previews ad, there were only two of the covers that were in. Like previews has to be run two months in advance, so the art has to be in three months in advance. And the other covers just weren't done. So when they ran the covers in previews, that was like a giant image of, of what is a niche variant cover for people who are fans of this of his like sort of erotic style art like my yeah. it's it's for fans of what he does but it looked like hey here's what we're doing yeah and, like representative of the whole right 
and it was, you know, a female character that hadn't had a book in a long time, and like, hey, where this book's going to be about her ass? It was, a whole, <laughs> it was a terrible nightmare. Like people were hating the book before it came out. Like we got a whole bunch of fire heat for it. And Nick was just like, hey, no press is bad press. Like, people are paying attention to the book. Just do good work. And then the book starts coming out, and my reviews are like, well, this doesn't make any sense if you haven't read this other thing. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be on this book for six issues. Like, I'll get two issues of my run that's a story that we actually want to do, and it's going to die. Uh, so I was really frustrated coming off the, the four issues during Spider-Verse, and I just leaned into it. So we're like, when I was asked, like, what do you want to do with the book going forward? I said, I want Jessica Drew to quit the Avengers because Spider-Verse was such an annoying pain in the ass. That it's impossible <laughs> to explain that she doesn't ever want to fuck with that sort of thing again. And she wants to go live a normal life and do normal stuff and be a private eye again. Gee, it sounds <laughs> like you're projecting a little bit there, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, it was 100% just like a diary. Um, <laughs> and so that's what they yeah, The first issue is just like she's got a new costume. She she makes a joke about the internet talking about her butt, and it's just like I want to be a normal person. But Jessica Drew, if you know her history, like she's never been a normal person. She her parents essentially created her to be a Hydra spy, and she didn't have a childhood. I think she was even like aged up um, from adolescence to be an adult earlier. Like she's just never been a normal person. So we told this story that's much more down to earth about this superhero that's only ever known superheroics trying to live a normal life and being terrible at it, like failing miserably at it. And it connected with people. Like we had a really strong following um, for the first couple of arcs that we did. And then secret wars happened. So every Marvel book ended. And after secret wars, the books all jumped ahead eight months, I think, because they didn't want to have to explain secret wars in the first issues of all these new books they were launching. They were just like, okay, well there's a time jump. And, I had kind of just started what I wanted was doing with Spider-Woman. I didn't want to change anything up. And they wanted every book to have some major change. And at the time, I had six-month-old twins. So when the editor called and said, you have to decide today what you want to change in the book, I'm like, um, eight months? Why don't we make her pregnant? And uh, he laughed and said, okay, well, you're coming to the retreat next week. Figure out something you really want to do. So I <laughs> change it. And I had six-month-old twins, so I was just trying to get my deadlines done. I came to the retreat with no better idea. Like, I had no other idea. And uh, I had lunch with Nick, the editor, um, Dan Slott, and Brian Bendis, who was doing Ultimate Spider-Man at the time. And at, at lunch, we were all talking about what we wanted to pitch. And he's like, okay, Dennis, what are you going to change for Spider-Woman? And I said, I really want to make her pregnant. Like, I'm, you know, I got little kids at home, and it's an eight-month jump. And fortunately for me, Bendis and Dan loved it. They thought it was a great idea. They're like, you know, Jessica's not the young spider character. She's not a big movie character because of the Sony confusion. Like, we can get away with aging her in a way they wouldn't normally let it. you got to pitch that to the room. So we go to the room. Nick had hated it for a, for two weeks or whatever, so I expected the room to hate it. But came, came around to my turn, and I said, I mean, it's eight months. Why don't we make her pregnant? You know, the book's about Jessica trying to live a normal life and being bad at it. Like, what is the biggest heaviest normal life stick you can beat somebody with give them a kid and the room loved it they were just like yeah i don't uh everybody kind of looked at them each other like i don't i don't want to write that book but yeah that's a great idea <laughs> um so again we you know put a cover image of a very pregnant jessica drew on it's like cover. shocking how pregnant she is especially yeah, she's eight months pregnant yeah 
the internet lost its mind. Like that was a very inappropriate thing to do. And mothers shouldn't put their kids in danger. And like now we were given the wrong message, blah, 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 blah. Hated the idea. Book comes out and I have never written a book that was more beloved by the people reading it than my spider woman run. We did it for, I think 20 issues, 20 some, let me think. 28 issues all told if you count Spider-Women. That's um, awesome. I have since, I've, I've had people write their master's dissertation on my, on the feminism of my Spider-Woman run. I have <laughs> constantly had people, like pregnant women, that's like their go-to costume to wear at cons or was for a while. It's probably kind of been a minute. But no, it's, the book is like a diary of my life too. It, it's every thought I ever had about parenthood, yeah, there's like everything that happened in that. Like I accidentally just like bled my personal life and 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 struggled into it. It's one of the things I'm most proud of. Um, and that's where people can connect with it because they 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 see you working this shit out on the page. Right. Which I did that by accident, yeah. by the way. I never intentionally put my own shit into the book. But every time I read something from six months ago, I'm like, oh right, that's what was going on with me in that moment. <laughs> that's great though. That and that's great that you are able to use your outlet to um to to just kind of reach out and and show other people like oh this this is this is what it's like this is so um yeah man you it sounds like you really enjoy doing the spider woman do you think you have any more stories for jessica drew in the future one day i love the character i put her in my very short-lived doctor strange run and I, as much as I love writing her and as much as I'll probably sneak her into stuff in the future, what I realized doing that is that I, Javier and Veronica and I told my favorite story I've ever been a part of, and it has a very clear beginning, middle, and end. And like the final issue of our final Spider-Woman, like the last page is a zoom out of the apartment as they just go on and live their lives. And like, that's the end of the story. So, so you I, have closure. Yeah. Like a lot of closure and I love her. And again, I, I put her in spite in my Dr. Strange and I liked writing her again, but it just felt like I'm leaning on this thing. I'm comfortable with when I should be writing about Steven <laughs> kind of a thing. See, so yeah, I think I'm done. I'm not going to ask you to name names or anything like that, but do you ever write a character? You connect to the character and then, you know, Playtime's over, you put the toys back in the box, you have a different book, somebody else picks up the character, and you see what they're doing and just go, no, 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 they do not do that. Like, how, or, no, or are you, you able to... Once you've written them for so long, you can't read the, the next book. Like, maybe years down the line you can, but, like, I love Sice Barrier, I love his work. I didn't even read that. I wasn't even that connected to Cable, but I had just come off of X-Force, and I couldn't read his X-Force. I because agree. you're just like that is a world that lives in your head for a time, yeah. And lives in somebody else's head, and it's just not the same thing. So I don't. I, I've never done. I've never even tried it. So I don't know if I would hate it or love it. I just know that it's a thing I avoid. And I've heard other people say the same thing. It's just it's really hard to jump immediately into being a reader when you were the writer. I hear you. So yeah, you, you've you've gotten to do all these. Um, amazing huge titles at marvel and um consistently just 
you know, showing people, oh yeah, this, this guy knows what he's doing. This guy can write. And, and then you, you finally got a chance to do some stuff at DC. How was that experience? My DC experience is so weird. Like I <laughs> love everybody that I worked with. I got to work with Freddie Williams on my, um, black beetle thing that we did for, uh, I don't remember what it's called now. The the thing where the characters become evil that happened last year. Um, uh, year of the villain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was just a one shot. But like, I've known Freddie forever. When I worked at a comic book store, he came in and did a signing when he was like first doing Robin way back in the day. And he's a super nice guy, a local guy. Um, and I love him. So it was fun to work with him. Uh, it's weird writing one shots. Like, it's not really my skill set. I like I like to have a lot of room to to breathe and to build story, which is my favorite thing about both arena and uh, spider woman is the amount of space we got. Um, and it was just a weird project, but I, I love blue beetle. I love, uh, Freddie. I really enjoyed working with the editorial team. Um, and that was the best experience I had at DC. Cause I did a book. I wrote an issue of a character two years ago, which is my very first DC experience where like I got in, I met the editor, we were, we were going to do an issue. What's like a, it's called a drawer issue where you do it and then they can, they have it drawn and made. And then if the team gets behind, they can slide it in and, and it'll come out as like, you know, a Batman issue. 800. Is there ever any guarantee that it will eventually come out or is it just like, no, I mean, so, I mean, usually you write an evergreen thing, and like any time this year it can come out, right? So yeah. I did, I did a, a book. I won't say what the character was, but it's a character I love. Um, it was just one issue. It had to be evergreen. It, like the editors were great, but like everything kept sliding around because they changed what the status quo of the character was several times while I was doing it. And by the time I got to the final draft, I turned in the final draft, and they said, "This is great. We're gonna." send it to the artist the very next day something catastrophic happened to the character in another book and completely uh. changed the status quo and they're like yeah so it doesn't even make sense to have this drawn like so i got paid but it is a drawer issue that wasn't even drawn that sucks they completely changed the character after they did it. um and it wasn't a bad experience it's just like it doesn't even it does, does it count like nobody's ever gonna see it I got paid, so it counted in my taxes. But, um, and yeah, I love, like, my favorite comic book character of all time is Guy Gardner. I would love to do work at DC in the future, and I'm not against it. But Marvel has been really, really good to me, and I, I've gotten to work with amazing artists and on some of my favorite characters. And DC just, <laughs> for whatever reason, I have the hardest time getting an attraction <laughs> over there. Um, am I, and my dance card's pretty full right now, so I'm not looking. Oh yeah, and that's not a knock against DC. Like I, I love DC, and the editors again are great. It's just it hasn't worked out so far. And they they have so many amazing characters there. Um, but yeah, stuff stuff happens. Uh, editorial teams change all the time. Uh, the actual characters change all the time now. Apparently, yeah. as you've experienced. So, <laughs> is there anyone at Marvel that you really want to get a chance to write? I mean, I've gotten most of my bucket list stuff. There's characters... I don't know. What I found is the characters that I loved the most as a reader are oftentimes the hardest ones to write. And the characters I don't care that much about 
are sometimes my most favorite. Like I was forced to put Domino into X Force because, like at the time, I was kind of a I liked X Force when I was thirteen, so it sucks. So like any of the '90s stuff at the time when I was pitching that, like I still thought was silly. And it turns out Domino and Colossus is one of my favorite things I've ever put in anything. Like their relationship and that stuff that we did in Cable and X Force. Like Domino was the the glue of that book. She's what worked the best. Um, and I was super surprised me. Like I didn't care about the character at all before that. And uh, that's happened multiple times over. Whereas like when I've had to write Daredevil, the few times I've tried to write Daredevil, Daredevil is my favorite character maybe at Marvel. He's very difficult for me to write. Like Matt Murdock is not a voice that easily speaks to me. Um, and so I don't know. It's the weird stuff that I've enjoyed the most. Also, here's the weirdest thing. I don't like Spider-Man like Peter Parker's <laughs> Spider-Man is not, he's never been my guy. Like he's cool looking and I like the movies and I love Spider-Verse, but I, he was just never, I'm not that guy for whatever reason. I'm really, really comfortable writing him. Like I, I'm, I write the Gamerverse book, which is a super fun gig because I get to write Spider-Man in a universe that nobody in comics gets to touch, but me, because it takes place in the PS4 universe. So that's like, wild. I don't worry about other people's continuity. I've played the game. I know what happens in the game and that's the only continuity we have to mess with. Um, and I've been doing that for multiple series now. It's super fun. And yeah, Peter Parker's voice is lives in my head. Like he's so easy to write and so much fun to write. And I, as a, as a writer, Spider-Man's one of my favorite characters now. As a reader, he, I never gave a shit. Which did, I you, <laughs> did you enjoy doing uh, doing that work with the uh, Cloak and Dagger series? That was the first comic that when when I was you know forever ago, the first comic I ever bought was a uh, Cloak and Dagger issue. Um, first comic I bought with my own money. So that, I thought the cover was cool as shit. So that yeah, they're the coolest looking characters ever. They have been. They have the weirdest. Um, origin. Yeah, yeah. Like the weird drug origin. And it's that, so I got I got asked if I wanted to do that series. Uh, it was coming off of Jean Grey, my Jean Grey run, which was super fun, but Jean Grey and Doctor Strange happened uh, while I was going through a divorce. And so like, I don't even remember writing a lot of that. And um, Oh, wow, yeah. I, my schedule got really messed up. It was just... People that haven't been through a divorce don't understand how much it is, how devastating it is to your routine. It's sort of like losing a close loved one where it's just super off-putting. You come out of it and it, like in hindsight, it's silly that it messed me up as bad as it did because it, it's essentially a big breakup. But it does completely wreck your mind for a while and your emotions are kind of off, all out of whack. So like I, there's issues of Jean Grey I don't remember writing that I can read as though like I'm a re- like I'm coming from them fresh because I'm in such a weird headspace when I did it. And so coming out of that was kind of around the time the smoke cleared, those two books had ended or moved on with other people. And they offered me Cloak and Dagger. And Cloak and Dagger is kind of like the holy grail of like weird creator projects where like everybody pitches Cloak and Dagger. Everybody wants to do Cloak and Dagger, but they almost never do a series. And when they do, they don't last very long. And, so when I was offered, I'm like, absolutely, Cloak and Dagger's awesome. And then I realized, like, I don't relate to either of these characters at all. Like, <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. Like, they basically just look cool and have a neat origin. And they're, like, one of the few standouts from a strange period in, like, new characters at Marvel, right? Like, 
other than X-Men around and at that time period, the late seventies, early eighties, like what, what fresh stuff was happening that stuck around. Um, and yeah, reading the old stuff, I loved it, but I'm like, this is not what I do. I don't what. And my editor called me and said, well, what if we lean into the codependency? Like they're super codependent. Their powers are codependent. Like they oh, yeah. can't survive without one another. Like, you know, uh, cloak needs daggers light to keep from becoming like a soul vampire essentially. Um, and as someone who had just gone through a divorce, this idea of, of a broken codependent relationship seemed like it'd be really fun. I'm like, Oh now I get it. <laughs> uh, but then I proceeded to write 12 issues of cloak and dagger that were about my divorce. <laughs> and that was maybe a misstep. So it's a really weird, it's a very strange book. Like, I think parts of it are really cool. I think the artist killed it. Um, we did some fun stuff with Mr. Negative. But if I had to do it over again, I would, maybe would have made it a little bit less personal. Because it's a strange thing for me to read. I don't know how it is for other people to read. But, uh, yeah, I maybe leaned into the diary aspect of my writing a little too much on that one. Yeah, yeah. and But, I mean, you, you're learning as you go. There, there's no... Um, it's not like th- there are rules to to writing this stuff, right. and uh, uh, you know th- this is your uh, it's your canvas, and and you're doing what you will with it. And they they hired you because they they like the canvases that De- Dennis Hallam makes. So, right. well, um, editorial like my editors like the book a lot, and I've had people that say they like them. Um, it's just for me, it's a strange thing. Also. Here's the thing that I thought about the other day. I remember I'm friends with Jason Aaron, and before I got in at Marvel, when I'd only done another couple, Alabama boy, yeah, Jason Aaron died in the wool. Um, but I remember asking him once. He did. I don't remember what book it was, but he had done an arc that I absolutely loved. It's one of my favorite things Jason had ever written, and Jason's one of my favorite writers. And then the follow up arc, I wasn't that into. And I remember asking him once, like, what the difference was. Like, it was trying. What I was trying to get to is like. How come this was so awesome? And like you kind of you kind of missed it here. And he didn't know what I was talking about. Like I remember being feeling very awkward, but he didn't get what I was saying, and I dropped it. And I, I thought it was really weird. Like he doesn't understand that this one's awesome. But now that I've written, you know, dozens and dozens or hundreds of comic books at Marvel, we try to hit the ball out of the park every arc. <laughs> like what whatever we're doing, we think is going to be awesome, and we try to make it awesome. And you're so close to it and you do so many different revisions and like lettering passes and you never really see the art finished until it's out of your hands. I have no idea which issues of my books are any good. And like, you know, it's, it's also obviously subjective. So people like different things and that, but I never know what's going to be well received ahead of time. And eventually once you've done this long enough, you kind of stop looking at the reviews because they just make you anxious. So I have no idea what people think of my work at this point. Um, I keep getting hired and I'm proud of certain things and I really like certain scenes and I'll, I, my favorite thing to see online is when someone like uh, screen grabs like a digital copy of something and puts like a line of dialogue or uh, a sequence up and says they really love it because it means uh, like I'm doing my job right and making people happy. But yeah, it's really hard to, to see your own work from even like half a step away because you're so you're so in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, 
you you've mentioned editorial a, a few times just just in passing and as a guy who has gone from uh you know start starting in indie and then mm-hmm. moving to you know the biggest comics company in the history of the world ever um how how much has the editorial team kind of uh instructed your writing and kind of helped you to uh or 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 even hindered in some cases that does it is it hard to get used to having an editor when you are um uh you know when you're starting from indie well i think i benefit i benefit on some level with my relate my willingness to be edited and my relationship with editors has always been really positive and part of it is i had such a tiny indie career like i basically did two books that actually got published and nobody read them and then i went to marvel and everything has been working with an editor and early on you need the help like i had to learn how to work in a 20 page format i had to learn how to make cliffhangers work i had to learn you know like for some reason my early work was full of cuss words like i could curse because i owned it (laughs) so i did and like I had to learn how to make stuff sound authentic and not cheesy with no curse words in it. I had to learn a lot, and my editors really helped with that. And I, I'm really, I'm a very like writers' room kind of guy. Like I like to, I like to toss ideas back and forth. I'll call my friends and talk to them about what I'm working with that day and talk stuff out. I really like that, and that's what editors do. You know, like they're sounding boards. Um, they're able to look at something with fresh eyes because they're not so close to it and and give you notes. And I really like that. And I like the rewriting process and getting notes. Good notes are equal parts frustrating and like enlightening and awesome. Um, I think everything would be better if we had more time to rework it. Uh, so I've had a great experience with that. And I, um, I actually even dated a really good editor for a while after, after I got divorced, um, who's still a good friend of mine. And watching it from the other side has given me even more appreciation. Like there's, there's so much managing of personalities and um, schedules and everything that they have to do that the fact that they're able to be like creative partners on this stuff as well is really remarkable without getting any ownership, you know, like nobody yeah. editors on the back for a good comic, but they do so much work. So I love editors. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that they are unsung, unsung heroes and, you know, like, like anything, some people are better at it than others, and you have great editors and not so great editors. But I would be way worse without my editors there to to help me along. It's like with the um, the Claremont's run of X Men. I mean, um, from <coughs> different accounts I've read, it it seems like uh, Louise Simonson kind of dragged Claremont by his heels to victory sometimes. <laughs> Just because it, it seemed like she was a freaking lion when it came to uh, getting respect due to her teams and getting them the the things that they need so they can do their job, and also kind of giving them a little bit of direction occasionally. Right. So, well, you need that. Yeah. And I've I've been really lucky. I've had some really great editors. I think Nick Lowe's an awesome editor. Um, Devin, who uh, also I worked with on I worked with him on Click and dagger and spider woman for a while uh devin lewis is really great um and i don't know my my current editors off are awesome 
uh, Mark Basso, who is the guy that I'm working with, the head editor that I'm working with on um, my Game Reverse Spider-Man, he does all of the special projects, and so he has to deal with outside editorial. Like we we have a team of story people from from the game that we, we deal with too from Marvel games. Um, and so like, that's an extra level that he has to deal with. He's been great. I, I just, I don't know. I've been super lucky. Like maybe there are terrible editors out there and I haven't, I just haven't. <laughs> with them. For the most part, I've been super lucky. Earlier you, you said, you know, when you had the characters cussing all the time and, and you had to find out how to give them an authentic voice, uh, that was a criticism you, you leveled against your, your work on gearhead, uh, finding yeah. the character's voice and, and what was, how did you manage to um, to correct that? And, and what, what's a, a tip you can give writers in, in helping them to, to find that voice? Well, I had a tendency, I mean, I don't know if this is common, but I had a tendency early in my career to make every man or every woman protagonists and then a wild and crazy supporting cast. Because I... That's just how my mind works. So like, well, this person's ever is relatable and everybody likes this person and, and this is the protagonist. But then here's the zany cast of characters. And what I would find when I read back my own work is I made the least interesting person the main character. Cause like that's the biggest problem with Gearhead is there's some really great personalities in that book, but Shelby is not one of them. Like she's pretty like normal. Her situation is interesting, but she's not that interesting. And so I think you can push flaws and personality quirks and weirdness into your protagonist without making them unrelatable. And it just makes for a more interesting reading experience. That's pretty easy to do at Marvel because most of these characters are already pretty interesting. Um, but, but yeah, like you, you got to give, especially in creator own work where you're, you know, you don't have that built in fan base. You don't, you can't throw Wolverine in it for an issue to get the sales up your your hook and your premise and your character is the only thing that you have to, to grab people early on. So you want those stars of the book to be really, really interesting. And you want to be able to show that right off the bat. Um, and so that's the thing that took me a while to figure out. Because I'm, I'm pretty good at voice. Like, I think my characters, oftentimes, the side characters will sound completely different from the main characters because I like that push and pull. Like I like two people that really should have no reason to talk to each other being forced to interact all the time, which is one of my favorite things about Exo Man of War that I'm doing right now is the two. Yeah, yeah. How is that? It's been awesome. I, again, editorial Heather Antos is my um, editor over at Valiant. She's red. I knew her from Marvel. We always got along. We never really got to work together. And she's been amazing. Like she, she makes that book 10 times better. And she's, super fun to throw to bounce ideas off of, off of and what the what she said that they wanted uh when she was asking me if i wanted to pitch on the book was exactly what i would have done <laughs> like it's exactly the sort of thing i was into um and so it's been great but yeah like uh, one of the things we wanted to do with the book is make the shanhara the um sentient robot brain basically of eric's suit of the exo man of war armor we wanted to make her a character. So like he's interacting with a person. And so the book is, it's almost like a, a, like a buddy cop thing where you've got this Visigoth warrior who wants to just defeat the bad guy and then crush evil and, you know, destroy. And then you have this 
like very level-headed uh, robot suit mind that has all of human knowledge at her disposal <laughs> and is telling him to calm down and like trying to see all of the, the, the chess moves. And they're just really fun to write because they couldn't be any more different, but they're way better together than they are apart. So who, who's your art team on that? It, I'm going to make sure. The problem with my artists is I only see their names written down. And oftentimes what the version in my head is not how it's actually pronounced. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah. Emilio, sorry, man. <laughs> Emilio, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Lyso, Lasso. Um, he and I worked on uh, one of my Game Reverse Spider-Man arcs as well. Um, oh, cool. He's fantastic. He's the, um, he's the artist around the book. And then the colorist's name is currently escaping me. The version that I have is the preview version that's in black and white, and I didn't list the colors. Oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry to put you on the spot, man. Hey, so um, Sea of Stars. Yes. Working on that with Jason Aaron. And it, it's kind of a, a family-friendly book from what I understand. Yes. Was, was this kind of written um, just as something that you could kind of potentially show your kids? Well, it's <clears throat> so Jason and I have been friends for years and I always wanted to co-write something and we talked about it, but we never like Jason and I approached story in, in very different ways and we had never come to an agreement on what we had to work with. Like he would pitch me a thing and I'd be like, yeah, that's cool, but I don't know what I would do with it. And then I would pitch him a thing and I'd be like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And we never came together. So it was just like this notion we had that it'd be fun to co-write something. And then uh, a few years ago, Stephen Green, who's another Alabama guy, uh, came to the local con here and he was amazing. He had done a couple of different Hellboy things, but like a handful of issues of comics under his belt and just these awesome illustrations that he was doing at the con. And he's a, really great right we both liked him a lot and i was seeing all of the writers who were attending the show going over and like flirting with with steven and i'm like someone's gonna pick this guy up and put him in an image book and so i went and got jason and i'm like alabama guy amazing artist like super hungry and brand new and someone's gonna scoop him up we should tell him what we want to do a book and he's like what book i'm like our co-written book jason's like okay so we go over there and steven's Uh a huge jason fan and so he immediately was on board. Like, yeah, oh, whatever you guys want to do. So then Jason and I had to come up with a story because we had an artist and we didn't want to lose him. Uh, and so Jason had this idea that he wanted to do like Tom Sawyer in space, basically like a little boy that gets powers. Who's like swimming through the, the sea of stars, like swimming through the ocean of this space. And I'm like, well, that's nonsense. Ocean. The space isn't ocean. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but it would be interesting to do like a father son story where like I tell the dad half and you tell the kid half, but like, what if we did like an ice road trucker whose kid goes missing and then it's literally underwater. Like he goes under the wit and he's like, no space. I want to do space. <laughs> so what we did, basically what we decided to do was smash those two ideas together into one book and tell it from two different perspectives. So, Jason is writing the story of so the book is about a space trucker who spent his entire career avoiding the dangerous, scary parts of space. And just he, he does his runs because he can make money and he goes home to see his wife and kid. And 
is as safe as he can be being in the scariest place in the universe, right? Uh, but his wife dies, and he has to bring his young son with him on a trip, on, on a, a run to make money. And the ship gets attacked. And the first issue, the ship gets attacked by a giant space monster. And they get the dad seemingly gets eaten. The kid uh, gets thrown off and lost in space. And then from that point on, Jason and I split the two characters up. So I'm writing a father who's lost in his son in space, who to him, everything in space is a terrifying aliens level monster movie where everything is out to kill him and probably already killed his son. And it's the, like the homing beacon that he has in his helmet that shows him his kids still out there somewhere that's keeping him going despite like horrifying things happening. But to the kid, it's, it's like a happy space adventure because he's just swimming through space and talking to space animals and, and like beating up cork sharks and doing all this weird stuff. And so it's two completely different perspectives on the situation. On the yeah, so they're they're experiencing awesome. the, the same or similar stuff at the same time. But I'm writing the road, and he's writing Finding Nemo. Oh, man. Okay, so I read uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road during a time when my wife and I were going to uh, w- we were pregnant with our first child. First mistake. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, she was uh, considered high risk, and mm-hmm. so every time we we would go once a week to the to the um, for the clinic, the doctor, to check on the baby and make sure everything was okay. And um, I would read that in the waiting room, and it was the most depressing shit I've ever. <laughs> and I had to finish it. It was good. But, oh, my God, it was depressing. <laughs> Thankfully, I read that book before I had children. And it wrecked me before I had kids. I know better oh, than it again. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was an experience. <laughs> right. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, like, my half of the book. And if you read, people who know our work would probably assume Jason wrote the like grizzled and like father character who's beating the shit out of space monkeys, and that I'm writing like the fun <laughs> weird kid stuff. Um, but he really wanted to do something that was all ages, like you're saying, and that was like you know it was like a children's book. Like he wanted to do something that was like completely the opposite of what he normally does, and leaned into how weird space is, and like had this joyful child that was experiencing it. And I had very young children. And wanted to dramatize that feeling when you put your kid in the car seat to take him home from the hospital and you just want to murder everyone else on the road for being dangerous because you have this precious thing. In my case, there were two of them. Uh, oh, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just that parental fear that immediately sinks into you the moment the kids are born. And it never really goes away. Like, you're always a little bit afraid they're going to put their eye out or you know, oh, I'm terrified being their head Daily. on the corner or something. Uh, I had a, I had a completely different reaction though. The first, first trip home, mm-hmm. I look at my wife and we both at the same time said, they just let us walk out. <laughs> they just let that. That's a kid back there. How did they just let us walk out with a kid? My mother-in-law was like, well, it's y'all's kid. I was like, I know that's so irresponsible <laughs> of them. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, the experience of being in the whatever the mother baby ward or what of the hospital when you have twins is bizarre because they know you can't handle it. Like no oh, one yeah. can handle two newborns <laughs> who's never had kids before. 
But at the same time, you got like a few days and then you're going to have to do this. So they were extremely uh, accommodating and helpful and were they gave us lots of words of like encouragement. Like you're way better at this already than most people. <laughs> and they'd be like, we're going to see you guys back here. I'm like, no, I agreed to one and ended up with two. You're never going to see me again. <laughs> um, but yeah, so by the time we walked out, I, I had, I'd got enough pep talks that I thought I could handle it. I was wrong. It was, it was a nightmare of six months after that, but uh, they're alive. It worked. Yeah, yeah. Five years later, how how's it going now? Like, how, how is it being a guy who I, I guess you work from home, um, uh, or or maybe you go to a studio or somewhere, but you, your job is is creativity. You 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 put the things in your head onto a page, right. and how do you do that with two five year olds, which I know are little tiny insane people. Uh, how well, do you do that with two insane people running around the house? I so until recently, the kids had school, like they went to to preschool, which gave me plenty of time. Also, I'm divorced, so I have them every other week. So basically, the way my life works is I have all the time in the world to write for one week or to do whatever I want, like completely free time from the time I wake up till I go to bed that I can work in, and I get, you know four hours of writing done a day and then I do nothing worthwhile the rest of my time. The next week <laughs> I have a small window to work while the kids are at school and am in, you know, outnumbered dad mode on either side of it and then have a whole weekend where I have to entertain and wear them out or they will, you know, kill and eat me. Eat you alive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And I get about five hours of work done a day because the something about having that routine and that, like having to work in that schedule, I get more work done on the weeks that I don't have my kids. That's wild. <laughs> um, or that I do have my kids, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as, as difficult as twins are when they're really little, like before they can talk, having two is a huge pain. But now that they're five, like my kids are never bored. Like they, they always have a, you know, it's uh, play date every single day. Uh, they want to beat each other up all the time. Like they're a little violent cause it's two five year old boys and, uh, they're kind of mean to each other sometimes, but I think it's probably easier than if I had one kid that just wanted me to interact with them a hundred percent of the time. Like I, I, I get to go play with my kids. Like I make it a point to go play with them cause if left to their own devices, they would only ask me to read things on their iPads. I think. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah go do their thing. But I don't know. It's, it's also fun to have two people in the house that have that completely unfettered imagination you have before you're ever embarrassed of any ideas. You know, like what their brains come up with and the weird false causal links that they make just experiencing the world with no answers. Um, that's really fun. It's really fun to, to so witness. Are, are they, uh, do they know what, what dad does for a living or do they, do they care? They care. And they sort of know. Like, if you asked them, their answer would be really funny. It would involve comic books. I'm not sure that they have any. Like, I try. I my parenting style is to explain to them as if they're adults any question. Like, that's how we got past the why stage. Is I would just answer it with as many words as possible, as detailed as possible, until they lost interest and whatever. They're yeah, until they about. get it, or they're just bored and. Right. Yeah. So you know, my kids 
have some vague understanding understanding of like the precis- precipitation cycle because they asked me about clouds one time. Uh, <laughs> but that's kind of how they are with comics. Like they get it. They know I did something. They understand that it involves Spider-Man, but I'm not sure they get what that is. They they've gotten to where they like the books themselves. Like they have these torn up Sea of Stars issues in the back seat of the car that they go over and they ask me what stuff says while I'm reading. I'm like, I know I can't look at that now, but yeah, <laughs> if you would describe it, I wrote it. I could probably tell you what it says. Um, so yeah, they, I, they're excited about it now. I think once they're old enough to be unimpressed and over it, they'll have zero interest in comics. But they're sort of into it now. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be cool. That's that's got to be pretty fun to to share that with your with your kids. Like my, I have, I have two girls, mm-hmm. and um, they. Uh, I think that they they're in the stage where they like comics because daddy likes comics. And so we'll go to, um, you know, the, the local comic shop occasionally and, uh, I'll let them pick out their thing and then they'll look around with me and it's just a fun little outing. And, right. uh, yeah. So s- stuff like that's always kind of, it's cool to have something to share with your kid. Um, yeah, my kids love, they love comic conventions because they love superheroes. So they like comic conventions. They really into like fist bumping Spider-Man people in Spider-Man like cosplayers and stuff. And they like that R2D2 is always at the comic shows here in town. Uh, oh yeah. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. I suspect one of my kids is extremely athletic. Like he's very strong and fast and coordinated for his age. First time he picked up a Nerf football, he threw a perfect spiral into my sternum and then did oh, it nice. 10 times in a row. Uh, yeah. So I, if I had to guess, he's the one that's not going to care at all about comics in high school. They <laughs> um, could be wrong. We'll see. That's cool. So I- anything else coming up that, uh, that you want to talk about um, comic-wise? Well, because of the, um, I don't know, like life and the time. Yeah, it's kind of up in the air, huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of my publishers that I'm currently working with have been pretty cool. Um, CS Stars is on hiatus already. Like we, we, Steven moved across the country and we took a break between arcs. So that break may be longer now because Diamond's currently closed. And, you know, we all at this point, we don't know exactly when all this will end. Um, but we're plugging along. He's drawn issue six now. He's almost done. And we're writing issue seven. So that'll come out sometime. Um, Marvel is full steam ahead at the moment, so I'm working on more Spider-Man stuff, and I have um, my Cosmic Ghost Rider run is about to wrap up. I think there's one issue left, and um, I'm talking about doing some some other stuff with that editorial team. So nice. Marvel will definitely be keeping me busy, but uh, you know what that'll look like and when it'll come out kind of depends on what happens with with publishing over the next few months, um, and then. Yeah, Exo Man of War number one just came out this week, and Valiant is, I think they just uh, released a thing saying that they're kind of pausing everything. Until yeah, I, I heard that, that it was pencils down, pretty much. Right. So I think what's going to happen, Exo 1 came out um, just because of the timing, it was already, you know, it was already set to ship, but I believe they're going to re-release the first issue after when, when everything kicks back up again, so that people who didn't get a, get a chance to go to the shop right now, um, we'll, we'll be able to go get it because comic shops, you know, in the lifeblood of the industry and 
they have a hard time getting books to people right now. And the distributor just said they're going to stop distributing. So we want to do whatever we can to make sure people can get that. Go to their comic shop, get that physical copy, you know, give money to the, the local retailer. Um, so, yeah, that'll all happen in a few so, months, whenever everything's up and running. I don't know exactly when, but. Speaking of comic shops, mm-hmm. who, who, who's, your, who's your jam? Like, where, where do you go? What, who impresses you? It, it doesn't have to be anywhere around you or anything, just the comic shop you've been to that you're like, holy crap, I, I like the, the cut of well, their jib. When I got out of college, I worked at Pulp Fiction Comics and Games in Lee Summit, Missouri, uh, which is still there. That's still where my pull list is. Um, I love that shop. I love the people that work there. Um, it's right over by my mom's house, so I go in there pretty much every time uh, my mom wants to watch the kids for a minute when I'm over at her house. Uh, I love that store. Um, Elite Comics in uh overland park kansas which is where i live now uh is amazing i've I've known william for years he does awesome events and it's just a really great store so those are my two favorite local stores uh third eye comics in annapolis um sort of over by baltimore is my favorite comic shop in the nation uh steve and the and his team over there they just do heard of them before amazing work it's it's the most well-stocked store I've ever been to. Like, not just comic book shop, but store. Uh, you go in there, and if you want to buy an issue of Iron Man, he will have the last 12, multiple copies of the last 12 to 24 issues of Iron Man, so you can get the whole thing. Like, he just has the best staff. Like, it's stocked so amazingly well. And it's the only comic shop I've ever been into where... Every customer that comes in, they say, what are you here looking for? They take you immediately to find it. And then they start talking to you and finding out what kind of movies you like, what TV shows you like, and recommending things based on what, you, what you're what you into and who you are. That's and, awesome. Yeah. He's got, his customers just love him to death and love the staff. Every time I go to do a signing there, he's moved because he needed a bigger space because the store is just killing him. So That's great. That's great. And, and – you know, there there are a ton of stores right now that are that are if they're not already hurting, they will be. Uh, what can we do to support those stores? <sighs> you know, everybody's talking about it. There's, there's um, I'm on a couple of different like Facebook groups and things with creators where we're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, I saw that Leo Williams was posting kind of before the the diamond shutdown had happened. I've never met her, but she built. seems so rad. She She's seems like awesome. Just yeah. a, a really good person. She's a great person. She was doing a project with uh, my friend Jasmine Amiri, uh, and I got to read at who's at Oni now. I'm, I'm assuming that book's out or coming out through Oni. They, it used to be at Lion Forge, and Lion Forge merged with Yeah, Oni yeah, they kind of absorbed. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure where it's at, where that project's at. It's called um, Render, I think is what it's called. But yeah, I got to see Leah's entire, like, thought process as they were developing the book and it was coming together. And I was really impressed with her scripts and with her plot outlines and everything. And then I met her at San Diego that year, I believe. And yeah, she's just an amazing person. And now she's killing it, doing all these Marvel work, Marvel books and, and, and running away with X-Men stuff. And I'm really happy to see she's doing well because she is delightful. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it, yeah, she was doing something where she was on Twitter posting, comic shops that were still open and been doing uh, delivery and curbside and, and different things to help people continue to support their retailer. And I think 
some people are still doing delivery. I, for the most part, I don't think you're allowed to do curbside, like any city. That yeah, especially if it's like shut down. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what shops are going to be able to do going forward. But from what I've seen locally, if you if you look online at your social media presence or website from your retailer, they will tell you what they're able to still do. And, you know, that it may be you can buy a gift certificate, gift certificate so that you're giving them a little bit of cash now that you can then go and get the books once the stores open up. They may be doing um, delivery or or even I think some people are mailing books. Just anything you can do to continue putting that money to the, the lifeblood of the industry, because, yeah, we can get books from Amazon, but that's not exactly the same thing. And, you know. Amazon isn't a, a, a local friend of yours that you get books from every Wednesday. Wednesday. Um, yeah, yeah. Amazon doesn't need our money. Um, right. Local shops do. So you guys go to your LCS, throw, throw them some money, see if you can do it online or via the phone, however you can. Uh, let's, let's keep these shops open. And uh, yeah, pe- people like Leah Williams kind of taking it upon herself to to point out these things and, and go like, it's kind of incumbent upon us to, to be the change we want to see. So I, I, I totally respect that. Um, so yeah, man, Exo Man of War, we need to get it. Yes. Um, Ex-O-Man-O-War. and, uh, I, I guess, uh, it, it's crazy right now. There's all kinds of crazy stuff happening, but, uh, Back when, um, you know, when when stuff kind of levels out, we got Sea of Stars to look forward to. Uh, we have your uh, your co- Cosmic Ghost Rider, mm-hmm. um, and uh, good lord, how many books are you writing right now? Uh, so, Exo Man of War, Cosmic Ghost Rider, um, Sea of Stars, and then Game of Spider Man. Those are the primary things that I'm doing now. Uh, all of those either are continuing in some way or I'm working with those same people on other things, uh, going forward. EXO, I mean, EXO is going to have legs. Like whenever it, it actually launches and starts going, we're going to do it for a while. That's a really long story. We've got planned there and everything else has. Yeah. Like there's <laughs> things are in the works. It's just such a weird time and nobody oh, yeah. really knows how long this is going to last. So what that will look like and when it will happen and I, in what order, I can't tell you. But um, My only suggestion for EXO, God forbid you guys do an alt cover, do a throwback Chromium cover like the, uh, the um, who was it? That, it was Joe Casada, right? Mm-hmm. That did the original? I, was it Joe Casada that did the, he did a cover or he did the? No, no, the original book. Uh, ex- I, I could have sworn it was like Casada and Palmiati on EXO. Yes, I'm looking it up. Um, it was that was uh, Jim Shooter and Steve Englehart, right? Holy smokes, really? Maybe I'm thinking about the the cover. I remember they had a like a chromium cover that uh, it was one of the first like big purchases I made. This was during like the speculator market in the '90s, so it was probably not worth anything that I paid for it, but uh, I um, I lusted over that stupid comic for the longest, and finally I got it. I was like, 
Oh yeah. He yes. did do something because yeah, Exo Man of War Birth. Yes. So he did yes. something. But I don't but, know. Okay, well, fair enough. You yeah, win. Yeah. I thought no no. <laughs> no, uh, my my half formed uh idea <laughs> with this stupid premise. But yes. Um I can't wait to read the EXO. It I I always thought that uh that was such a cool concept. And man, Valiant has been killing it lately with like their new titles or the, the titles they're putting out again. So, yeah, the, um, the books were so good. Like they had such good creative teams and, and such long runs and everything was so great. And, you know, like everybody kind of parted ways at the same time. I think like they, they wrapped up a lot of those series and been going for a while. And I didn't, I wondered what they were going to do. And what they did is they brought in some awesome editorial talent and, went looking for, you know, like equally great talent with different voices to, to come in and kind of do different takes on it. Cause that was the thing with EXO was like, you guys have been doing the same great thing for a while. Like we're going to have to shake it up. And she's like, yeah, absolutely. We want, she, she essentially told me that, well, I won't use the words cause they're licensed characters, but she wanted to take it in a completely different direction without losing who and what the character is like we want yeah. your version of exo man of war and take it in 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 an, an interesting new direction so it's not just more of the same that's and awesome that's my favorite thing to do like take the character that has all this amazing rich history and use all of that as backstory for a new story that heads in a completely different direction that's what we did with spider woman and that's what exo is and i think people are gonna love it well dude dude i'm i'm looking forward to it and any anything else you want to say i don't want to take over any more of your time than than you have because oh my goodness um i'm sure you got a ton of crap to do uh anything else you want to say before we we uh we pull the plug nope just uh you can find me on twitter at hopeless dent um it's posting nonsense uh if you want to see photographs of my children in halloween costumes from various years you can put, uh, <laughs> Dennis hopeless comics on instagram because i never update that uh and Colin Bunn and I uh, do a podcast or used to do a podcast called Missouri Swagger that is coming back soon. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, uh, it's just two Missouri comic book creators. It was two Missouri comic book creators talking talking nonsense. And now our other Missouri friend, Kyle Strom, uh, comic artist extraordinaire, is going to be on the show um, with season two. So be looking for that. The new episodes aren't up yet, but we've recorded two now. I talked to Cullen the other day, and he, he's a super good guy. I really enjoyed our uh, our discussion with him. Yeah, you don't want to piss him off. Mean Cullen is the scariest person on earth. Oh, really? The angry Cullen? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. For, okay, so I'd, I'd only ever read his name, and for some reason I thought he was British. <laughs> um, it, well, it, I mean, he a Marvel character named after him who is British, so that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I listen. I listened to an, an interview that the day the day before um, I was actually supposed to talk to him. I was like, "Holy shit, he's he's a southern boy." Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> so the first question I asked him was, uh, "Are you as surprised as I am that you are not British?" And uh, I I don't know how if if he knew what to think about that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yes. Yeah. No. I I named both Colin Bloodstone from Avengers Arena 
and my son after Cullen Cullen Bud. Oh my god, that's awesome. And so yeah, like, <laughs> Uh, Colin Bloodstone is British, so there is a British Colin out there. But what I also learned is that in the Missouri accent, you can't properly pronounce the word Cullen because when Cullen says it, it's really clear that it's a U because he says Cullen, I'm Cullen Bun. But here, <laughs> we sand off vowels so hard that no one knows what my kid's name is. Every time I eat, like, this is Cullen. They're like, Colin? Cohen? Like, no. <laughs> Cullen. Like, I have to do a voice in, in order to properly pronounce my child's name. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, dude, Dennis, Dennis Allen, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. We're looking forward to, uh, to Exo Manowar and um, – if you ever have anything else you want to promote or talk about, by all means, hit us up. We would love to have you on again. Um, and, dude, stay safe. Yeah, you too. All right. Take it easy, bro. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, that was fun. It was a lot of fun. I, you know, it makes me want to go and check out that book on July 3rd. Yeah. Tell you that, Sea of Stars. What's funny is every time we talk to somebody, I'm always like, oh, yeah, that book sounds great. I want to read that. So it's yeah. just like doing this podcast costs me money on books. Dude, right? <laughs> like, so any creators who want to come on the show, if you want to give us a copy of a book for free to read, that'd be great. It's save my pocketbook. If you don't, I understand. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, I will never turn down a free Why don't you send us a PDF? <laughs> yeah, send us a PDF. We'll love it. You don't have to, but you'll make good friends. Come on. <laughs> come on, Come on, guy. Come on, guy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's great. I love hearing about new books coming out. I love, yeah, I do too. I love books that are self-contained and like the tell. You no, know, I mean, I love DC and Marvel. Don't get me wrong. I love X Men and I love you know the, you know Superman and Batman. But I love books that are tell a story without having to read a hundred books. I well, I, you know what I what it is is I've read a ton of Spider Man. Yeah, I've read a ton of X Men. I've read a ton of Batman. I've yeah. read a ton of well, not a ton of Superman, but more now than I had before. Right, and you know, I, I love them. And I, it's hard to say it like this. I, I, I absolutely love them because they um, were a huge part of my childhood, you know, and it was a reason that I got into comics is because of those books. Yeah. But the independent scene now is so good. It's so good. And you see so many new things that you just wouldn't see otherwise, you know, or read otherwise. And just the, the unique stories that come out, especially on creator owned books. It's just so much, I don't know. There's so much more enrichment, I think, coming out of there. Yeah. And there's so, I mean, the stories are so, they're so unique. They're not, they're not held as such editorial standards, I think. And even though they do a good job in the big ones, is you can do a lot more freedom in the independent side or on the non big two side. And I love it. Yeah. Hey, I think that's a show. That is a show. But I want to say one more thing before you spiel. Oh. I just want to, I just want to quickly say that this episode was edited by my 17 year old son, Cody. And this is his first time ever editing a podcast. He was super nervous, but I want to give him a shout out saying thank you. Yeah, that's 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 actually kind of really exciting. I hope it comes out really, really well. He said he enjoyed it, and he and he did want me to make sure that I told Casey to stop saying um so much because it's really annoying. <laughs> so from the mouth of a 17-year-old, Casey, there you go. <laughs> well, just so Cody knows, we have told Casey this. Yeah. <laughs> Casey, don't listen. <laughs> Hey, before we go, yeah. I want to implore people to go to spoilerverse.com and check out all the stuff we have to offer. Now, when it comes to spoiler country, we have literally over 350 episodes with more coming out almost every day. Yeah. But Johnny, give me two episodes you think people should go check out today. Have to go listen or watch the Walt and Louise Simonson episode. 
that is probably my favorite episode we've put out in the last six months. Wow. It's not only is it a lot of fun. I had fun on it. They had fun on it. It was just, it was just great. Yeah. And then I would also say, let's see, that one's fun. Uh, go check out Tot 14. That one was a lot of fun. Um, just go to the website. I'm not going to tell you we talked about either Tot 14 or Tot 12, which is the werewolf one. Um, <laughs> either one of those, you're going to have a good time. There you go. And then we have a bunch of podcasts uh, that are part of the spoilerverse. And you know, you'll hear us say network, but we don't really like that word. We're, we're more of a verse. We're really a, of a universe because uh, we just have a lot of fun. And everybody that helps us out on the spoiler verse, nobody gets paid. Okay. This is all done out of passion. You know, do we want to get paid someday for this? Sure. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to do this full time? Yeah. We have a lot of fun. Um, but the reason why I tell you this is so you know that everything that comes out of the spoiler verse is done with love is done with passion for what they're they're working on and the fact they're doing it because they want to be there and they want to do it and they want to entertain you. And I would really implore, go and check it out, Nerds from the Crypt. Go check out Shooting the Sith. Go check out Bridging the Geekdom. Go check out Narrative Gunslingers and soon Funny Book Forensics. The list just goes on. Check out Johnny's other two podcasts that he does on there, Haphazard Adventures, which he does with my niece Kaylee. And then listen to him complain about life. With his his solo act called Y2CL. <laughs> you know, I'm not even kidding. I, I wish I could implore the amount of amazing stuff that comes in and out of this place. Sarah Kay sits and, and researches every day on new paranormal articles to create. And she has a lot of fun doing it. And she goes deep to try to write her articles and be the best that she can. Jay, what can you say about Jay? Jay writes articles that he wants to read, and I think he also writes articles that others want to read because there's so much love and passion in what he writes. Yep, he's a curmudgeoned old bastard sometimes, but it's fine because he, he, the one thing you can you can't say one hundred percent honesty. Yeah, is he's not honest. His articles are honest, and they're not mean. If he writes a review for you something, said they're not honest. Well, I, they're honest, right? They're, not, <laughs> they're not super honest, honest, right? And his articles, if he writes an article about a book or a, a movie he doesn't like, he's not just bashing it to bash it. And he, he gives honest opinions in it, which is, what I, which is what I appreciate. Yep. So there you guys go. And, you know, if you're enjoying this, please go into your podcatcher where you listen to this episode today. Because maybe uh, you're a fan of Christopher Golden. Or, no, maybe you're a fan of Dennis Hallam or Dennis Hopeless. And that's what brought you here today. But go check out some of the other stuff we have. Like we talked with Christopher Golden. And we talked with, like Johnny just said, Walton Louise Simonson. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And not just A-stream people in the comic book industry or in movies and TV shows, producers, uh, you know, music makers like that do the score for movies and TV shows and everything else. Composers. Composers, thank you. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. We, we run the gambit. Yeah, it's we do. not just comic books. It's it's books and, you know, and, and movies, like everything we just said. And it's pop culture entertainment. It's pop culture entertainment. And I just implore you to check out what we have. And if you like it, subscribe. And if you really like it, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, if it's three, five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars, whatever it is, let us know. Yeah, whatever review you give, whatever stars you want to give, just give it right, right through if you're honest of why you're doing it. That's all I ask. Yep. Okay. I think that's it. Yeah, that's a show, man. That's good. All right. That's good. And don't forget, in an oceans of podcasts, we are the Let's get the compels you to do. Open the mind, Henry.